HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This is Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for a couple of years now, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices on our network. Each week, I record my show with a window out onto people eating pizza. Why is that important? Because this is food radio. I am excited to bring the listeners incredible stories from women in hospitality, people who care enormously about food, where it comes from, and the stories behind it. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary. But we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Here's how you do it. You go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and do that right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Speaking Broadly in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview a woman who I admire, whose passion for change and passion for their own life and experience inspires me. And today, I have an extraordinary woman named Lauren Friel. Lauren has a feminist wine bar called Rebel Rebel in Boston in the Bow Market. I went there and on a beautiful afternoon sat in this glass enclosed space. It's tiny, it's 258 square feet, sat at the counter, tasted through a whole series of wine, and it was really magical, but not as magical as the woman behind it. Lauren, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a self-described feminist 
wine bar. What does that mean to you? Um, for me, being a feminist wine bar, a feminist space of any kind, just means being a safe space, um, not just for women, but a safe space for all people. It's a space that takes into consideration people's bodies and their mental health and inclusivity, regardless of their identity. And it just means really creating a space that's about community and acceptance. The reason behind that, I imagine, is quite personal. Because knowing something about your own history, you have touch points in each of those areas that you just mentioned. Questions about your body, questions about safety. And I'd love to talk about, you know, when you think about the intersection between the work that you're doing in the wine barn, creating this safe space, how does that intersect with, say, your own experience of your own body, which you've described as having a, a feeling of dysmorphia? Yeah, so I've worked in hospitality, I've worked in restaurants truly my whole life, and there are things about the industry uh, that frustrated me, and I don't think that that's surprising to anyone. But, you know, there are things, I, as a woman, as a woman with a history of trauma, um, as a woman who identifies as a queer person, I never felt like any of the spaces I worked in were really for me. And why was that? There are a lot of layers. You know, we don't often take into consideration women's bodies as employers in the restaurant industry. You know, that can mean a lot of different things. We don't take into consideration health, women's health care needs. Um, in terms of women's bodies, is that yeah. in, uh, requesting that people wear certain clothes? And Absolutely, yeah. Requesting that people wear certain clothes, not having, you know, feminine sanitary products in the bathrooms. You know, <laughs> frankly, I find communal sinks really problematic. Um, um, if you're dealing with your menstrual cycle and you have to go out into the common space with other people, it's not the most appealing thing. You know, I think that we don't take into consideration um, women's safety as employers. You know, at the bar, we do close earlier so that we aren't getting out very late at night. I could stay open later. And, you know, we don't do that. We don't take into consideration just an openness and communication. Um, there are things that we're not supposed to talk about or that, you know, are discouraged. There's obviously the, you know, with the Me Too movement, the kind of proliferation of actual danger that women encounter in the industry has finally come to the surface, but that was something that was always very much at the fore for me. And did you have experiences your, yourself that, you know, you'd like to share of where the intersection of your own feelings about yourself collided with an experience you had that was painful and made you want to change it more than just in the abstract? Because I think in the abstract, we can all sign up for this is a, a better way to go. Sure. But what yeah. is your personal experience? Yeah. I mean, at the so I would say that there are, again, there are layers. Um, at the kind of the, the least harmful end of the spectrum, there were those interaction with, interactions with guests where I was, either, you know, the sommelier or a server or whatever stage it was in my career where, you know, I was demeaned or touched or whatever in some way that was harmful, at least to my mental health, potentially put me in a place where I didn't feel physically safe on a much more serious or, you know, uh, impactful level. Not that those experiences aren't impactful, but for me personally, I am an intimate partner violence survivor. And the person I uh, was in that relationship with was a chef and was working for the restaurant group that I was also working for. Um, and when I, you know, kind of started to make attempts to reach out to my employers at the time and say, hey, something's going on. There was a lot of victim blaming is the short version of that and kind of ignoring of the problem and, and saying, well, that's not really our problem. You need to deal with that, which isn't right. 
Uh, and, you know, there are also hierarchies of power in restaurants. Um, I think it's shifting, thankfully, but certainly when I started working in restaurants, and I think it's still prevalent today where the chef runs the show. Um, and there's a power dynamic there that can be really, really toxic on many levels, particularly if there's dating involved. I'm curious how you got out of that painful spot for anybody who finds yeah. himself in that painful spot, because I know you've spoken out trying to support people. Yeah. Um, what was your route out? Yeah. So I was in that relationship for two and a half years. Um, we were eventually living together, which is when things escalated, which is very normal in the kind of the pattern of, of intimate partner violence. I had tried to leave several times. Um, the average woman in, I don't know the statistics about men in domestic violence relationships, but the average woman, um, it takes them uh, seven uh, attempts before they actually leave. And that's an average. And that's because of the manipulative nature of intimate partner violence relationships. So I had tried to leave many, many times. Part of what he did that made it difficult for me to leave was that he would threaten suicide if I didn't come back, which, you know, as much as someone might be hurting you, nobody wants someone to hurt themselves. And, you know, people who are in, who are the abused person in these dynamics are often the kind of empathic person where they want to help the other person and they don't want that to happen. And so eventually I did just leave. Um, I ended up going to a local shelter and they helped me get out of the situation because we worked in the same industry. You know, it was difficult for me to really go anywhere where I would be safe. Um, I ended up staying with a friend in another part of the city. He didn't know this friend. And so he didn't know where I was. Um, but really he committed suicide and that's the only way that I got out. Um, and I really, <laughs> he had already gone to prison for trying to kill me and he'd gotten out. Uh, and tried to get me to go, come back to him, and uh, I refused, and so he did commit suicide. It's really dark, and I know that. Does that feel like a burden to you? No, it doesn't, which it's taken me a while to come to that place. He was a very, 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 very damaged person, and if it hadn't been me, it would have been someone else. For people who might be in these situations, there's a point at which there's a high, very, very, very high probability that the abuser will kill their victim. Um, and that's when strangulation starts to come into the abuse. And strangulation had become his primary kind of method of abuse toward the end of the relationship. Again, he went to, he went to jail for a few months for it and then was released for good behavior because he was very, very intelligent and very manipulative. But it really, it would have been, he would have killed me. I don't have any doubt about that. Um, and how do you sort of go forward, protect yourself yeah. and be open at the same time after a relationship like that? It's hard. <laughs> um, I have, I am in a relationship now. I have an incredible partner, but I had to take a long time off from dating. I think the inclination for a lot of people, well, there are two extremes. One is to never date again. One is to start dating again immediately to kind of convince yourself that you're still capable and able and, and worthy and all of these things. And I think that I can't say what the right thing is for any one person, but for me in particular, just taking some time off and really kind of understanding the mechanics of that dynamic, really doing a lot of therapy. <laughs> I cannot say enough about <laughs> how good therapy is. And even if you've never experienced any of these things, I think everyone should be in therapy. And therapy can look like a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be sitting in the room with someone and talking about your feelings. But uh, yeah, a lot of therapy, a lot of, of understanding the dynamics, understanding how manipulation works, understanding how gaslighting works, learning how to trust my gut 
gut, learning how to communicate when something doesn't feel good, learning how to say no, learning boundaries. I mean, so much of this dynamic uh, happens because particularly women are socialized to have very kind of flexible boundaries. Um, I grew up in an abusive household, so my boundaries are even more flexible than other people's, meaning I'm not good at establishing my own agency all the time. I'm willing to kind of subjugate myself for the you know needs or desires of others, which makes me great in the hospitality industry. I was ask, because I'm listening to this thinking yeah. um, a couple of things. One, the relationship between being manipulated into nothingness yeah. by someone who's so abusive mm-hmm. and then shining so brightly mm. during the day on the floor. Yeah. Putting those two people together yeah. in whatever time to knit them must have been very difficult. It was. And I mean, I think for me, work became my only reason for being, which was dangerous in another level. Work became my only source of identity and value because I didn't have an identity and I had no value in my personal life. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was exhausting. And, you know, I still look back on that time and I think I describe it to people as like, it was like living in a movie that I wouldn't want to watch. It's, absolutely horrible and you know to it's the other thing that is challenging for me and and I think other folks who have been through those things is that you have seen the darkest depths of what human beings are capable of and that can be really disheartening at the same time I also met these incredible women at the shelter who helped me I've now met other women who are survivors as well and the strength that these women have is endless I mean like boundless endless magic energy I mean it is like it is inspiring and I think that it can be easy if you've experienced something like that to kind of focus on the pain um, and the darkness that that kind of behavior comes from but then that means that those people win you know I'm I survived I'm alive today it's a miracle in whatever miracle means to you um, it really is and you know the odds were against me living through that and I did and you know I'm gonna live every day with that in mind and so is it that attitude that you brought to opening your own space? Because that yeah. seems like on the extreme side of agency. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like that idea behind it is so beautiful and strong. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering like what the steps were in between and what was it like creating the wine lists for others? Yeah. So there was a lot of um, soul searching in between, which is, you know, I think that sounds kind of like generic and woo-woo, but it's true. Um, You know, I had to decide what I wanted to do with my life and with the life, basically my second chance at it. And I took some time to figure that out. Was that hard to do? It was really hard. It was extremely hard. Yeah. And why was it hard? It was hard because people have expectations of you. You know, I was the executive beverage director for one of the best restaurant groups in Boston, James Beard Award winning. And, you know, if you, when you leave a job like that people want to know why you're leaving and they want to know what you're doing next and they have an expectation that you'll have an answer and it better be a good one and it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure I I just knew I didn't have it in me and I kind of didn't care you know that's the give no fucks point exactly I had I had zero fucks left to give I will say that being through what I've been through brings a lot of things into focus and what matters and what doesn't matter became very clear to me very quickly and I did not care anymore what other people thought which was I think the greatest gift I mean I worked in a like 
high-end home design shop for a couple months just kind of like take a full step back from the industry that is great because that would leave a lot of empty space uh, it so much yeah you know it's not and, and it's pretty yeah it was great and people treat you nice it was so great it was like i clocked in i clocked out i had no never done that before <laughs> i'd never yeah. done that before yeah. um and then i started um so I did go to school for journalism, um, and I had a Cassandra Landry, who is the at that time was the editor in chief for Chef's Feed. You know, we kind of started chatting, and I pitched her a few things, and she liked them. So I started writing for them, and then I started kind of just putting feelers out and making connections in other places. And I wrote, you know, everything from 800 word pieces for 50 bucks to 600 word sponsored content stuff for a lot more money and really just cobbled together an existence in a lot of ways. It's interesting to me that you chose writing, which is like taking what's inside of you. And it, it wasn't about your experience. It was about wine because I've read a lot of the pieces yeah. you've written, okay. which prepared you to actually, I imagine, do the really beautiful mission-driven writing that I've seen recently. But it must have been nice to just be expressing yourself yeah. about topics that are interesting and fun. Yeah, it was. And I think that a lot of the things that keep us from being creative are fear-based. And because I had kind of... 86 the fear in my life at that point um it just became easy because it was like well I made it through that so what do I have to lose I'm going to pitch this person that I have no business pitching and see what sticks it was a great experience and it was a great way to kind of find myself again I think I really actually maybe didn't think about that until just this moment but I think I really did find myself again through writing and kind of what my voice was and I was lucky really lucky to work with editors who wanted my voice who didn't you know edit it into oblivion who who are really supportive of, you know, let me say fuck and let me be kind of um, inappropriate and, and challenging in the way that I was writing things. It was validating and it helped me remember that like, oh yeah, you are this person and this person is, people want to know this person and, you know. You uh, went to Harvard yeah. for poetry and dropped out. You mm -hmm. went to BU for journalism and dropped out. Yeah. Did any of that play a role in you're not having the voice at first, do you think? I think so. I mean, I yeah. So, yes. Um, I think at BU, I was there at an interesting time where print journalism was... I was in the print journalism program, and print journalism Terrible was... Idea. Yeah, it was, <laughs> was just starting to, to tank. And I was working at, a, at Eastern Standard. I was on the opening staff there, which is aging me a little bit. But it seemed more invigorating. Restaurants seemed more invigorating um, than what was going on in media at the time, which felt like it was caught, particularly the program at BU, felt like it was caught between the old and the new. And I was wanting to write kind of edgy narratives and, and profiles of interesting people who were kind of on the fringes. And that wasn't really anything that they wanted to read. Like probably straight reported. Yeah. Where, you know... How many quotes do you have? Exactly. And where's your backup? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Which is important, too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it uh, wasn't really interesting to me at the time. And then at Harvard, I actually found a lot of support from the women who were my professors there. But there was a professor there who was male who was in a great position of power over me who came on to me. And I just was, I at that point, doubted my talent um, because he was part, a big part of the reason why I was at Harvard. He had kind of brought me into the program there. Um, and I started to think that my work didn't have value. It was just my body that had value. Um, and I kind of had this crisis of self and um, just dropped out. I, I didn't know what to do, but I found food again. And 
if it hadn't been for the food community in Boston, um, I would have been much, much more adrift. But, you know, I had something that I was good at that brought me joy and pleasure and was invigorating and exciting and changing. And there were a lot of young people involved. And, you know, I think that that was hugely important. And so you went from the writing and the design shop and the thinking and the brewing yeah. and the deciding. Mm-hmm. Did you go from there to open Rebel Rebel or was there? There was a little bit more in between. I did start consulting for a lot more restaurants, which was actually really fun. One of my favorite things is concepts. I love aligning a beverage program with the restaurant concept because so often the beverage program, particularly wine, less so with cocktails, but wine is often falls to the wayside as the responsibility of the general manager. There are very few restaurants that can afford to have a full-time wine person on staff, but you still want a good wine program. I like the idea that it took you so long to find your own voice, Mm -hmm. and it was so muffled and so confused for so long. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. (laughs) And also being able to help people find their voice and recognize immediately what is voice. Yes. What do you sound like? I see it. I feel that's the empathy coming out in you to be able to put it together for someone else. I think that's so lovely. Thank you. Yeah, it's so, it's fun. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Rebel Rebel. We're going to talk about wine. Everyone should be interested in natural wine. (laughs) And Lauren Friel, my guest today, is an absolute expert. So stay with us and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, your host. And today, my guest is Lauren Friel of Rebel Rebel in Boston, Massachusetts. Lauren, we've been talking a lot about your way to your restaurant, you know, how how you got there, a lot of struggle along the way, a lot of contemplation, a lot of personal work. But now we get to the part where you have this beautiful space or we're not quite there yet. But (laughs) how did you choose the Bow Market, which is in Somerville? Yeah, so... um, I was not necessarily looking for a brick and mortar. Um, very familiar with the you know challenges of opening and owning and running a restaurant, and I wasn't necessarily sure that I wanted that for myself. But a, a good friend of mine, um, her name is Alex Wishnet. She owns Gate Comme des Filles, which is a great chocolate shop in Beau Market. And Beau is really new for folks who don't know. It's kind of like a Chelsea Market idea, but it's um, a little more outdoor. And um, she reached out and said, "Hey, I'm I'm opening a shop in this new market." you should really talk to 
the developers. And I was, you know, did a little bit of like, ugh, developers thing. <laughs> um, and then I went and I, I saw the space and it's in Somerville and Union, right in Union Square where I lived for a very long time. And I talked to the developers who were, to my surprise, like two guys in their late 20s who were both from the area and very wonderful, very community oriented, very arts oriented, very much in the market to bring in first time business owners um, and make it easy for people to open a first time brick and mortar, uh, which was something that I hadn't come across yet. And the space that they showed me was, yeah, 280-ish or something like that square feet. So it's really, really small, but it's right on the corner of the market and it has these beautiful tall glass windows on two sides and the light's really great. And it seemed manageable and it seemed doable. Um, because it was so small, I had the idea that I was like, well, if everything goes to shit, I can run it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that's really interesting about the space or, or in Bow Market is that we have a shared liquor license, the, the vendors do, which is, I don't know how much anyone knows about um, Massachusetts liquor laws or the licenses, but the laws are extremely strict and the licenses are extremely expensive. We're talking like six figures at the low end. So it can be cost prohibitive for people who aren't part of a corporate group to open anything um, because the market, because we share a liquor license, it was a, a basically easy way for me to open something small and manageable and not have a ton of overhead um, or startup cost. So. so does that mean that you can people can walk the whole market with a glass of wine in their hand? Sometimes it does. Um, we're getting there. So the technically it will, but we're kind of working out. There are a lot of security things that go along with that and, and people's safety becomes a, a primary concern. There's also stairs. There's stairs. It's on two levels. Yeah, yeah. there's stairs and it's all, anytime you have an open situation like that, the liability is, is a concern. So eventually the, we'll be able to do that. Right now um, it is possible on days when we get an event license. So we do that about once a month, and it's really fun. So let's talk about putting together the wine list for your own place, yeah. because you obviously <laughs> had you know, put your mind into building other people's lists. Mm -hmm. But when you decided to have your own place, what was top of mind? Top of mind was affordability. And which I have to say these days does not appear to be top of mind for most people. It and does. Yeah. A glass of wine is nineteen twenty dollars, which yeah. is it's like one glass equals a whole bottle. Right. Yeah. So wholesale. and that's something that that was frustrating for me. You know, part of working in other markets or writing wine lists for folks in other cities is seeing the way that the pricing varies city to city um, and really wanting to help make natural wine accessible to people in every capacity, affordable, um, easy to understand, easy to enjoy. So the bar is, you know, we don't have different sizes of glassware. Uh, it's a very casual kind of like uh, cement floor, you know, little stools to sit on environment. And we price the wines as low as we possibly can. I'm able to do that because our overhead was so low um, in starting the business. And I understand that I'm in a unique position. I don't want any restaurateurs calling me and saying, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? What are you saying? You know how hard this is. We're just trying to get by. I get how hard it is. Um, I was able to do it because of the unique space that we're in in Bow Market. And the other thing that I wanted is for everything to be changing constantly. We have a blackboard menu behind the bar. It changes sometimes during service. It's a part 
of a creativity from through constraints situation where we have no storage. So everything that we sell has to fit in that 280 square foot space. <laughs> wow. Which, I did not realize that. Yeah. Which means I can't take five case drops of glass pours. I can't. It comes in and it and it goes out. So on busy days, we do change the blackboard several times during service. Um, what an unusual way to buy wine, though. It is. Because you really can't buy, hold. You can't see what does well. Right. I mean, you have to have a really good sense of what yeah. you think people are going to drink, what you like, but what people are going to drink. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it just sits there and takes up a spot. Exactly. 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 And then we have to raise it really low to get yeah. it. Um, yeah. I mean, I've worked in natural wine now for a decade. So I'm lucky to have a lot of incredible relationships with a lot of importers now. Those relationships enable me to really focus on having exciting, interesting, different, new things pretty consistently that people are going to get excited about. Yeah. Let's talk about natural wine because yeah. people maybe don't really know what it means. And yes. heaven knows on the food side, when you say naturally anything, it's a really a code word for it's not organic. Right. It's like all these things that it isn't. Right. There's so much greenwashing. But in, in uh, the wine business, it doesn't appear to me as a casual observer that it's the case at all. Yeah. So natural wine is a little bit like the Wild West, <laughs> um, which I which is kind of part of what I enjoy about it. I've always been one for the underdog. But it represents a really small percentage of total global wine production. People have thrown out different percentages, 1%, but there's really, I mean, I think that it's difficult to say exactly. The easiest way to think about natural wine is to think about the way wine would have been made before industrialization and before chemicals, basically. So a lot of folks point to like pre-World War II as a good starting point, maybe earlier than that, depending on how you, where you fall on the natural wine spectrum. But the general idea is natural practices in the vineyard, meaning at, at the minimum, no chemicals, pesticides, fertilizers, things like that. At the other end of the spectrum, we're talking like biodynamic viticulture. So a more integrative, holistic viticultural practices where you're not just not adding things to the vineyard, you're actually trying to cultivate a small ecosystem in your vineyard. And then in terms of what happens in the cellar, there's nothing added to the wine, nothing taken away from the wine, usually a wild fermentation, unfined, unfiltered, not no heavy oak treatments. The idea is to let the grapes kind of and the land kind of speak for themselves. It's an unregulated industry right now, um, which is part of what makes it so interesting to me. But it also means it's a little hit or miss, right? I mean, it, maybe not for you. Yeah. But so, for some people, like you can get really funky bottles that yeah. for a time are like, but that's what it is. Like, yeah. That's the expression of the grape. And you're like, but it doesn't taste good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the day, no matter where you fall on the natural wine spectrum, it's a very hotly debated um, sector of the wine industry right now for all the reasons that you just mentioned that, you know, natural wines, because they are wild fermented, because the people who are making them do not use um, corrective agents in the wine of any kind, um, you can have fermentations that go a little haywire. Um, you can throw off flavors in the wine. Things can happen to the wine that aren't, quote unquote, supposed to happen to the wine. But that depends on what your rubric is. And what you care about. And what you care about. Because you could taste it and be like, that's what, that, like, I'm just tasting nature. And yes. I really want to like embrace nature. So I embrace this. Yes. So it's interesting at the bar, even though I work in natural wine, I have what's considered kind of like an old school palette where I do find those, these things that we identify as flaws and faults in natural wines to be things that I don't enjoy. But we do have folks who come in who want that. And 
I will always have a conversation about what those flavors are and what they mean to the industry and where they come from and so that people have context and understanding for what they are. The off flavors. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so that there isn't a perception that that's what all natural wine is and that if it doesn't smell and taste like barnyard, that it's not natural because there are plenty of producers who make very clean natural wines. So, and I would love yeah. to, I've read some of your thoughts about traditional winemaking. Yes. And I think it's great to to share that, you know, why you're so passionate on the one side is also because you're passionate about the problems with like industrial mass winemaking. Yeah. So, uh, well, informed consumerism is really important to me. I think that everyone should have agency and have the ability to make choices for themselves and their bodies and have that information. I understand that sounds a little bit more of like a moral issue, but it really, I think it is important. What ends up happening is that with industrial winemaking or conventional winemaking, there are all these things that are happening in the vineyard, all these things, all these additives that are going into the wine. There are dozens and dozens of additives that can be put into wine, um, everything from chemicals to gluten to dairy. I mean, they're everything. And none of those things have to go on the label. It is extraordinary. The the labeling, the lack of transparency on wine labels is extraordinary. Yeah, it's upsetting. And it's harmful to the industry and it's harmful to the planet. It's harmful to our bodies. So, you know, natural wine, even though it is a little bit unregulated, it's actually been very successful in as an example of an industry that is um, self-regulated at this point, where because it is a small sector of the wine industry or the wine market, there is a very strong sense of community. There's a very strong sense of transparency. And if anyone claims to be uh, making wine naturally who really isn't, it isn't very long before they get called out. So it's interesting. <laughs> that, is, that is interesting. So let's let's talk about who some of your favorite producers are. Yeah. Reliable and findable. Yes, which and is important. Yeah. It was super, right? Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of, I mean, I, I lived it at Food and Wine. You find this amazing thing and there's like three cases of it. And right. well, that's not very good for people. Right. Or there are more cases, but they're 200 bucks. Exactly. Uh, so you seem to sit in exactly the intersection <laughs> I love, which is you can find it. It's well-priced and it's delicious. Yes, yeah. So um, one of my favorite producers is um, Dora Forsoni. Um, her, the name of her estate is Sanguinetto. She's in Tuscany. But she is this incredible woman who makes very, very, very traditional wine brilliantly. Um, she took over the estate from her father. She's, I want to say she's probably in her 60, mid-60s now. She's been an out lesbian her entire life, which in Italy is, and particularly in Tuscany, in basically a farm community, is no small feat. She and her partner work the estate together. She hunts wild boar in her vineyards, makes sausages from them, and will feed them to you if you go to visit her. Um, she makes this gorgeous... Her red wines get the most attention because it's Tuscany, of course. Montepulciano is where she is. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous reds. Her roasted Montepulciano is one of my favorite everyday wines. It's, I think, on retails for probably 20 $24, something like that. Um, stunning. But her white wine, she makes this gorgeous, just kind of like table white that is stunning and so affordable. And I really, uh, yeah, she's incredible. She's an incredible. I mean, she's inspiring on many levels, and then her wines are humble and gorgeous. Um, I love her. That sounds <laughs> worth seeking out. Yeah. Um, at the Close Feet show, I ask people to teach me something. Yes. So uh, what are you going to teach me today? I was going to talk about the most important thing to do when you're opening a bottle of champagne. Or sparkling wine. It doesn't have to be champagne. Great. Does that sound good? It sounds good to okay. me because I struggle. struggle. <laughs> okay. What I actually do yes. is I say, oh, can you do can this you do- for me? <laughs> That's my method of opening. Somebody else does it. So the best thing to do, you have the foil off, you get the cage 
untwisted. You want to leave the cage on the cork so that gives you a little extra grip. And then you, rather than twisting the cork, you want to hold on to the cork as, as hard as you can um, and twist the bottom of the bottle because it gives you more leverage. And it's safer in case the cork, say that bottle's a little too warm and the cork's going to shoot right out. Um, and it gives you more control and more, more um, leverage and it's easier to open. Okay, that's fantastic. That is <laughs> completely usable. Good. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't know that. Just the the bottom. The, bo- the bottom. Yeah. Just the bottom. Yeah. Okay. And I'd love to have you give a shout out broadly to someone, a woman in hospitality who you admire, who doesn't get the attention that they deserve. Yes. So um, Madison Trapkin of Girl Squash, um, which is an incredible zine uh, publication that uh, she's based in Boston. She is someone who I admire in so many ways. Um, She is so easy to talk to. She's brilliant. Um, I'm not sure she realizes how brilliant she is. I hope she does. But she's going to hear this and she's going to say, am I brilliant? That's (laughs) awesome. Yes, she is brilliant. Brilliant. She's creative. She has great style. Um, she's doing incredible work um, to bring women together to foster a community of um, thought and creativity and expression in Boston, but you know, hopefully internationally. I would love to see that happen for her. She's incredible, and I love seeing this like kind of next generation of um, intelligent, amazing, powerful women coming up and being inspired by them. And yeah, she's great. So I met Madison just the other day at the Fab Conference, uh, which was in Charleston. Is all this group of extraordinary women, and and I love Girl Squash, which is this zine, and I really want her to succeed highlighting other women obviously it's the central tenet of the podcast is so so important so yeah. fantastic shout out for um for madison thank you so much for coming on speaking broadly i've really enjoyed having you here today lauren and if people want to find you online or they want to find rebel rebel where do they find you um we are online we'll see instagram at uh, rebel rebel somerville and our website is rebel rebel somerville as well and then i'm online at vindrop And you guys know where to find me at Speaking Broadly. I want to thank Matt, the amazing engineer of the day. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening to Speaking Broadly. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, send me ideas. Wonderful things come into my DM box that shape this program. So I hope you'll participate in that. And have a really great week till I'm back. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.